I want you to turn to the 20th chapter of Matthew. And I want to share with you this morning uh, a certain parable here that our Lord gives. A parable to explain a proverb that I, I just think will have a, a, hopefully have a wonderful impact on how you view your life and your future. I also want us to learn how to interpret Scripture. I want us, by handling the Word of God in our times in chapel, to learn how the Word of God is to be understood and how it is to be exposited or exegeted or interpreted. And I hope that will come through as we share together in this particular text this morning. Now, I want to start reading at the end of chapter 19 in the last verse, verse 30, and then I want to read down through to verse 16 of chapter 20. So it's Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You two go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I'll give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, you notice that this parable is bracketed by that same statement. Go back to chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then down to verse 16. Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, that's the proverb. The first point I want you to notice is the proverb. It is a maxim. It is a proverb. A, sh a proverb, by the way, in a dictionary definition, is a short popular saying expressing wisdom, usually from an ancient or unknown source. And that is exactly what this is. It is a short, simple statement expressing wisdom. And apparently our Lord, our Lord uh, coined this proverb, and he used it, by the way, somewhat frequently. It appears again in Luke 13:30. Here it brackets the parable, which establishes for us the intent of the parable. The parable is to explain the proverb. But the proverb is a riddle. It is a riddle. In fact, it's been a riddle to different commentators who seemingly have had a hard time figuring it out. It has baffled some Bible students through the years. I think that it's, there's no reason for that. It's, it's fairly simple. In fact, I was driving to the church uh, one day some years ago, and I was sitting in the car. I was talking to uh, one of my children. I can't remember whether it was Melinda or Mark. But anyway, they were sitting on the car, in the car next to me, and I was driving, and I was mulling this over at the time that I was first reading it, and 
I remember saying to whatever child it was, and I can't remember, what does it mean, the first shall be last and the last shall be first? And I'll never forget the reply. The reply was, oh, Dad, that's easy. I said, really? Oh, yeah, that's easy. It means, it means that everybody ends up the same. And I kind of thought about that for a moment, and I said, that is exactly right. You've solved the riddle. If the last are first, then the last are first. And if the first are last, then the first are last and the last are first. So everybody's first and everybody's last. That's exactly what it means. The only way for the last to be first or the first to be last would be if they all crossed the finish line together. I've had enough races in my life to understand that. If the first are last and the last are first, then everybody's equal. And that is exactly what this proverb is saying. Everybody is going to end up exactly the same. And is not that exactly what the parable proves or illustrates? The simple point of the proverb is everybody will finish the same. It's a very simple, very straightforward proverb. And the question is, what is it talking about? And that's what we find out in the parable. Let's look at the parable. All right, you got the proverb now. It means everybody finishes the same. But let's look at the parable. This is a fascinating picture. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. By the way, the kingdom of heaven is the sphere of God's rule through the grace of salvation. The kingdom of heaven is talking about the dimension of saved people. It's talking about the, the spiritual realm over which God rules his own redeemed people. So we're talking about the realm of the saved. He says it is like a landowner, an oika despotes, somebody who literally rules over a household, uh, somebody who manages an estate, the owner of an estate, which in this case included a vineyard. And the landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now this to us is somewhat of a, an imaginary scene because we don't, live in an agrarian society. Some of you may if you're from the San Joaquin Valley. But let me just give you a little bit of the background here. Here's a guy who owns this estate. He owns a house. He owns some land. And on his land is a vineyard. In the fertile plain areas like uh, the Valley of Esdralon and the Jordan Valley and the Sharon Valley along the coast of, of the land of Palestine, the grain fields were the major enterprise. But as you know, there are a series of mountain ranges in the land of Israel, and those slopes of those mountains are covered with vineyards. The vineyards were the most valuable property, and they demanded the greatest amount of labor, the greatest amount of effort. The slopes are very, very steep uh, on which the vines grew, and of course that intensifies the labor to produce them there. And what they've done, and you can still see it when you go to the land of Israel, they've terraced off those mountains, which was a tremendous thing done basically by hand centuries and centuries ago. There were many rocks on the hillsides, and so they pulled the rocks out and they formed them into, into uh, walls or terrace walls. And so you see the mountains terraced with these rock walls, rocks that have been taken right out of the ground. Even the fertilizer and whatever additional soil they needed up on the slopes had to be carried on the shoulders of the men who had to climb the mountain. It was a very, very difficult enterprise. And once the ground was leveled and terraced, then in the springtime they would sow or prepare the soil, uh, get the soil all ready, then toward the end of spring, the beginning of summer, they would sow 
they would prune, they would do whatever they needed to do to produce the grapes, and then by the time September came, they would be able to harvest. Now, when September came, harvesting the grapes would be a massive task, and you would need way more people to do the harvest than you needed up to that point. Close on the harvest, by the way, in the land of Palestine comes the rain, and if you don't get the harvest in, the rain will ruin the crop. So September is a very, very busy time, and that's the scenario you have here. And the landowner has got to go get some laborers to get his harvest in before the rain comes. And that's exactly what you see. Verse 1. He went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Harvest was a panicky time, a very busy time, a hasty time. And he didn't have enough employees to do it, so he had to go find day laborers. Now, the Jewish work day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It was a 12-hour work day. And by the way, they did it six days a week. So they worked a 72-hour week. At the start of the long work day, before 6 a.m. in the morning, the owner went to find laborers to work for him. Now, at this point, I want to enter with a little bit of a historical note. In the social scale of the land of Palestine and in the ancient world, the lowest rung on the social ladder was the day laborer. And that would probably still be pretty much true. And one step above a beggar. The day laborer. Sometimes when you drive around here, if you drive through the canyons, you'll see uh, some uh, Mexican laborers just standing around on corners. They are day laborers. They don't have a job. They don't have employment. And they are dependent on somebody coming along, driving alongside of them. Sometimes you see them down in Newhall, and they're looking for some kind of work because if they don't work, they don't eat. And that's how a day laborer functions. That's what most of the illegal alien population in the state of California does. So it was very similar to that. These were people who were a part of the social structure, part of the culture. They were the lowest class of workers. They were unskilled. They were unemployed except for one day at a time. And life for them was desperate. And life for them was precarious. If they didn't work, they didn't eat, and they couldn't feed their families. The one resource they did have was they could glean the corners of the field. They could pick up the, the bales of grain that fell off the wagon, and there was a a sharing that the Old Testament required in that regard, but they still had very little. Even slaves and household servants had steady jobs and families who shared their benefits, but these laborers were never certain they were going to eat. And because the pay was so very low, it was a subsistence level of living. God was concerned about such poor people in the land, and that's why in Leviticus 19.13 it says, "...the wages of the day laborer shall not remain with you all night until the morning." That's a, that's a provision that God made that if a man works for you as a day laborer, you have to pay him at the end of the day. You can't wait till the next day because he may not have enough to feed his family. And so God recognizes that in, in a society there will be poor people. There will be people who are somewhat indigent, people who work only on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, they need to be cared for appropriately. And the Old Testament required they be paid at the end of the day they labored. Deuteronomy 24:15 says, You shall give him his hire on the day he earns it before the sun goes down. Because if he is poor, he has set his heart on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and it be sin in you. In other words, it's an iniquity if you don't pay that man at the end of the day that you have made him work. So the parable then is a vivid story that could happen in any Jewish town, in any, any scenario, in any day during harvest. Such hired laborers would congregate in the marketplace and the in the center of town, and they would just hang around there hoping some landowner would come and give them a day's work. That sets the stage. Then verse 2. So the landowner comes in. 
he hires the laborers. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius is not low pay. That is not subsistence level. That is not minimum wage. That is a generous, normal day's pay. In fact, that was the wage that a Roman soldier received for his day's wage. And a Roman soldier was considered to be in an honorable position. It was standard pay for a for an employee, even for a skilled worker. It was generally accepted as a very generous, a very fair wage. And so the owner and the worker agreed on that. And that is not a desperate man's wage. That That is a fair wage. And so upon that agreement, agreement, he sent them into his vineyard. Now that would have been early in the morning at 6 a.m., as the day was just dawning. And then in verse 3 we read, And he went out about the third hour. Now the third hour would be since the Jewish day went from 6 to 6 at 9 a.m. He's out in the vineyard. He realizes he doesn't have enough laborers. The harvest is too great. He can't get the harvest in with the laborers he has. Maybe he's anticipating the rain coming soon. And so he goes back into the marketplace. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. They're not in a negotiating position. They've already lost three hours. And so there's no need to negotiate the wage for the day. Uh, they perhaps know the man to be somewhat of a fair man. He, he returns. He needs more help. They must work. They don't have an option. No discussion of price. The day is partly gone. Their options are limited. And so they have no other alternative but to go to work. Then in verse 5, he went out about the sixth hour. That would be at noon. And then he went out about the ninth hour. That would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He did the very same thing. And again, there's no negotiation because these guys have lost even more time. The same process is repeated. And then in verse 6, this thing gets really interesting. And about the 11th hour, it's now 5 o'clock in the afternoon. There's only one hour left to work. And he found others standing and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And this is to point out that the issue was not that they were lazy. And they said to him, Because no one hired us. They were lazy. They'd been off in the shade somewhere or by the the river or the stream, but they were waiting and waiting, hoping against hope, and no one hired us. And these people probably were the least able-bodied. Wouldn't you imagine that if he'd been there at 6 and been there at 9 and been there at 12 and been there at 3, he'd have picked off the strongest-looking ones? Now, they would, have, they, would have, they would have been the most unemployable. And he comes back at the 11th hour and he asks them the question. Then at the end of verse 7, he said to them, You two go into the vineyard. Hustled out to the vineyard. You've still got an hour to work. And whatever is right, same kind of terms he would do for them. Then verse 8. The work day is over, and when evening had come, that's 6 p.m., and some of these people have been working 12 hours in the scorching sun of, of a Palestinian September, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Now we're getting to the first and the last concept. Now the proverb... Gets, it finds its place in the parable. Here we see the truth of the proverb. He says, call the laborers, only start with the last group, the ones who've only worked an hour. And the pay scale is really shocking. Verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Whoa. That was the negotiated wage for a day's work. These people worked one hour. And they got a whole day's wage. And we can assume, because it's inherent in this 
parable, that that happened to the rest. That is, those who went to work at three and only worked three hours, those who went to work at twelve and only worked six hours, those who went to work at nine and only worked nine hours. And verse 10 says, when those hired first came, they got really excited. Their first conclusion was the guy is paying a denarius an hour. We're going to get nine days wages out of this deal. They said, um, they thought, verse 10, they would receive more. But when they got to the front of the line, they received each one a denarius. They received the same. Whether they worked one hour, three hours, six hours, nine hours, or twelve hours. Whether they came in the cool of the evening and just worked an hour, or whether they went through the scorching of the day and worked twelve, they got the very same reward, the same wage. Well, they weren't happy. Verse 11. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. And they said, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. They murmured, they grumbled. The Greek word is egonguzo. They egonguzo. They go It's an onomatopoeic word. We've worked through the, literally the, the Greek, the burner. It was generally, uh, generally applied to the hot east wind that scorches the flesh and parches the lips and dries the throat and blows across that land at that time of year in the evenings. Of course, in September, cool down. One hour of work in the cooler twilight seemed absolutely insignificant to a hot, hard 12 hours. And the landowner's response in verse 13, he answered and said to them, Friend, I like that demeanor. I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Wasn't that the deal? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Um, if, if I want to be generous, is that going to bother you? Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Look, it's mine. I, it's, what I've done is not illegal. What I've done is not unjust. They had the same need as you did. They have the same need for food and, pre- and provision for their family that you have. Your jealousy is the only issue here. This is not an issue of inequity. If I want to be kind, I've been fair with you, more than fair with you. If I want to be kind to others, does that make you jealous? Is your eye evil because I'm good? Evil eye means envy, jealousy. Does my compassionate kindness make you jealous? And then he reiterates the proverb, Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. So what does that mean? It means everybody gets what? The exact same. The exact same. Hmm. Now what's the point? Now here's the reason for everything up to here. What is the point? What is this thing saying? What are we talking about here? In the sphere of salvation, where God rules over His own, everybody gets the same. What is he saying here? What does he mean? This is not a lesson on economics. This is not a lesson on wage scales. 
This is not a lesson on employee benefits. This is not an allegory. It is a simple illustration that everybody gets the same. That's all it is. Now follow and you'll see the point of it. The householder is God. The householder is God. The vineyard is the kingdom, the sphere in which those who believe in him exist. The laborers are all those who are his, all of those in the kingdom. The day of work is time. The evening of pay is eternity. The wage is eternal life. And the steward, by the way, who dishes out the payment is Jesus Christ. So God owns the vineyard. The vineyard is his kingdom. All those laborers who are in the kingdom represent his children who have come into the kingdom at different points and different intervals. The day of work is simply time. The evening is eternity when we receive our reward. The wage is given by the steward who is Jesus Christ. And what is it saying? Here it is. Everybody who comes into Christ's kingdom, no matter how long they serve him, no matter how short they serve him, no matter how hard their particular service was or how easy their circumstances were, in the end they will all receive what? The same reward. You say, that doesn't sound like the way I thought it would be. Um, you mean to say that if I was a, an executive pulling down $350,000 a year and I just attended church, that I'm going to go to heaven and get the same eternal reward with some guy who hacked his way through some hot jungle in the middle of India to win people to Jesus Christ and died of malaria? You mean to tell me that in the end, when I get to heaven and the Lord starts passing out the rewards, that the executive who lived fat and sassy all his life and was a marginal Christian, somebody who just went to church and really never served, is going to get the same reward as a missionary who gave his life in the scorching heat of some country to win people to Jesus Christ? Answer? Yes. Now, does that upset your theological apple cart a little bit? You say, what about my crowns? My rewards? Well, all those who love His appearing are going to get the crown of righteousness. All that means is a crown which is righteousness. And everybody who goes to heaven is going to get eternal righteousness. And James said, all those who who love is appearing, who anticipate his coming, are going to get a crown of life. That is a genitive, which means a crown which is life. And we're all going to get life, and we're all going to get righteousness, and we're all going to get a crown of rejoicing, a crown which is rejoicing. We're all going to rejoice eternally. We're going to live eternally. We're going to be eternally righteous. We're all going to be made like Jesus Christ. What's, what's the wage then? The wage is eternal life. The wage is eternal life. Um, you mean to tell me that uh, you mean to tell me that the thief on the cross, who lived a life as a criminal and a murderer, and Jesus said to him, literally, 
moments before he died, today you shall be with me in paradise, is going to get the same reward as the apostle Paul, who suffered so much and who lived such a hard and difficult life. You mean to tell me that that thief on the cross is going to enter into the same eternal life that the apostle Paul is? Answer, yes. Yes. You mean to tell me that a person who receives Jesus Christ on his deathbed in a hospital is going to receive the same eternal life as somebody who spent his whole life diligently and desperately trying to walk obedient to Christ? Yes. Yes. Boy, did the disciples need to hear this. Man, did they need to hear this. Say, why? Go back to chapter 19, verse 27. Peter doesn't just speak for himself. He speaks for the group most of the time. Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Oh, come on. See, that was what was always on their mind. What are we going to get out of this deal? What's going to be our reward? I mean, we have forsaken all, and we've been through the 12-hour deal, right? And we've been through the burner, the hot wind, the parched throat, the scorch. We've forsaken all, and we have followed you. And they were looking for the, the big reward. They were saying, we're the 6 a.m. crew. And Jesus says to them, well, yeah, you're going to get the same thing everybody else gets. Say, it doesn't seem fair. You want to know something? It's not. Fair is hell. You want fair? Fair is hell. Heaven is not fair. Heaven is grace. Is that not right? Heaven is God's goodness. Now, they were just wanting some special reward. And they needed so much correction. Down in chapter 20, look at verse 20 to show you how this plagued them. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to him with her sons. Can you imagine this? Here comes James and John, two grown men, pretty tough guys, known as Boanerges, the sons of thunder. They were very brash, bold guys. And they bring their mother to ask a favor. Now, remember now, their mother was related to Jesus, right? By bloodline. And so they're going to play on his, you know, blood thicker than water kind of thing. And so here comes their mother and the two boys standing alongside. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. I mean, that's pretty brash, isn't it? We want the chief seats. Would you please do that for my boys? Brother, how embarrassing. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking for. But see, that was their mentality. That's up to God to give, he says. They were very concerned about what was in it for them, and the parable simply says you're all going to end up with the same eternal life. And it's only a matter of grace anyhow, right? Because if you got fair, you'd get hell. 
And that's the point. the end of chapter 20, Jesus confronts two blind men sitting by the road. And they're saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus uh, stops in verse 32 and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened and move with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. They were not just given physical sight. They were given spiritual sight and they followed him. They became disciples. You want to know something? The disciples were the the disciples were the twelve hour guys. These guys were the eleventh hour. Jesus was just about to die. They wouldn't have much time to serve him. His life was going to be over very, very soon. But you know what? In the eternal heaven, when the Lord passes out the reward, those two blind men who bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in the eleventh hour, are going to receive the same eternal reward as those disciples who served the Lord all through those three years of difficulty. That's the issue. You say, what's the point of all this for us? Just this, young people. And I think it's, it's so profound to understand this. We serve the Lord because we love Him. We serve Him through the gifts and opportunities that He gives us. But when it comes to eternity, listen to this, God is no respecter of what? Of persons. And there's no room for spiritual pride because you are in the ministry and somebody else is not. It's only a question of grace anyway. There's no room for spiritual pride because you are the leader of the mission team and, and somebody else is not a part of that. If God calls you to do that and God enables you to do that and God allows you to do that, give Him praise and give Him glory. And know this, that it perhaps will produce eternal glory for Him. But in the end... We're all going to receive the same eternal life. Whatever the rewards are, the gold, silver, precious stones, there's something beyond this. And just to put it in perspective, when you receive your eternal reward, if I read my Bible right, you're going to cast it at the feet of Christ, right? And then we're all back to being equal. In the end, it's grace. We'll all live in the Father's house. He's preparing a room for every one of us. We'll all be a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the final eternal new heavens and the new earth. We'll all be included in the bride of Christ. We will all inherit the whole inheritance. There will be no distinction in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. We're all one. And that will be reflected in the oneness of our eternity. So this parable is designed to keep people from developing spiritual what? Pride. In the end, the only reason you are saved is because of God's grace. And if He graciously deemed to save you and give you a life of service, you shouldn't anymore be rewarded for that. Then a man who was not saved until the eleventh hour should be penalized because it's all the grace of God. It's all His eternal grace. And so I just remind you that God saved you in order to bless you forever and ever. This is an encouraging 
picture, isn't it? He saved you. And some of you will serve him faithfully all your life. Most of you, because you're young. But you'll meet many who will only serve him an hour, or three, or six, or nine. But in the end, we'll all receive the same eternal life. Let me close by just giving you, and I want you to think this through. It has tremendous implications, but let me give you some closing points. And uh, just to help you kind of draw everything that's in this parable out, and I've, I've condensed it. One, God initiates salvation sovereignly. That is very clear in this parable. It was the landowner who went into the marketplace and hired the workers. The workers really couldn't help it that they weren't hired until the 11th hour or the 9th hour or the 6th hour or the 3rd hour. And those who were hired the first hour were hired the first hour because they were chosen. It is the sovereign work of God to initiate salvation. So why should we either be rewarded for it or penalized for the timing of it? Secondly, God establishes the terms. And the terms are the same for everybody. Listen to this. Because everybody had the exact same need. They all needed eternal life. Thirdly, God redeems those who are needy. God redeems those who are needy. That comes through this so magnificently. There they were, hoping, hoping for, for someone to come and provide food for them. Someone who would give them a service by which they could live. Someone who would find them in their desperation. It wasn't the rich. It wasn't the self-sufficient. It wasn't the satisfied. It was the poor, the meek, the beggars, the people with no resources who were just hanging there waiting, hoping someone would come. And it's a demonstration of penitence. Yes, God sovereignly saves. Yes, God establishes the terms and they are gracious terms. Yes, God is the sovereign, but at the same time, He comes to those who are aware, desperately aware, of their spiritual need. And so, another point that comes out of this marvelous parable is that God is compassionate to those who have no resources. You see, that to me is the real issue on which salvation hinges. When a person comes to the end of themselves. When you beat on your breast like Luke 18, the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When you have reached the limit, you have exhausted your own resources. Now, that was true in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Salvation came to the person who realized he was absolutely bankrupt, had no way to save himself, knew he was under the judgment of God, and was pleading for mercy. And Old Testament saying, people say, how were Old Testament people saved? Were they saved by the law? No, they couldn't keep it. Were they saved by the ceremonies? No, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. How were they saved? They were saved when they realized there was nothing they could do to save themselves, and they cried out to God and pled for forgiveness based purely on God's grace. And God has compassion on those who come to that point. He had just discussed in chapter 19 the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler had resources. He wasn't bankrupt. He didn't think. He was not about to declare his desperation. The Lord reaches out to those 
who are standing, as it were, in the marketplace of sin, in total desperation, with no ability to meet their needs. Another principle that comes out of this. All who come into the vineyard work. There are no deadbeats in the kingdom. There are no freeloaders in the kingdom. The demonstration of their genuineness is evident in their works. James says faith without works is what? Is dead. All true Christians will serve some short, some long, some mildly, some intensely. Another point that comes out of this parable is God gives us all more than we deserve. God gives us all more than we deserve. And the only right attitude is not envy. The only right attitude is humility. Humility. We don't deserve anything. And God gives us eternal life. It's all by His grace. So, as you serve the Lord, as you follow Him, as you love Him, realize this. But in the end, you're going to receive the same eternal life everybody else receives. Listen carefully now to what I say. So, if you fail, it won't change that. If you fall short of the goals that you set for yourself or the expectations somebody else set for you, it won't change that eternal life. You say, well, you're backing me out of some strong motives. Well, I hope not. Because there should be a motive that goes like this. Since the issue is not what's in it for me, the issue of my devotion to Christ is what's in it for whom? For Him. That takes it to a higher plane, doesn't it? So why am I serving? I'm serving because my King called me to serve. And if He called me for 12 hours, I'll serve Him for 12. If He called me for 9, I'll serve Him for 9. If He called me for 6, I'll serve Him for 6. If He called me for 3, I'll serve Him for 3. If He just calls me down at the end in the cool of the twilight of my life, I'll serve Him for 1 because my King called me to serve Him. And so I'm serving out of a much higher motive than my self-aggrandizement. I'm serving out of devotion to my King. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the fact that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. We fail. We stumble. Our service is intermittent, sometimes weak. Lord, some of us will never know a hard life of service. And you're so gracious. Thank you that all of us will receive the same eternal life. May that not steal our motive. May it enhance it. May we serve you out of devotion and out of gratitude. Thankful that in the end your grace prevails. Forgive us for spiritual pride. May we be humbled in the light of your goodness. Use these young people, Lord. The long day that is ahead of them, may it be filled with effective service, not because of what it will gain them, don't let them think like the disciples did, but because of the glory it brings to you and the love it shows to such a gracious king. We pray in your son's name, and everyone said, Amen. Have a great day.